I'm Aaron Levy, the CEO and co-founder of Box. Welcome to Founder Calls. Founder Calls is like if Charlie Rose and Ira Glass had a really weird distant cousin that had an obsession with enterprise software. On these calls, we talk to CEOs, founders, and investors about building, selling, and scaling in the enterprise. Hello, Stuart speaking. Hey, Stuart, Aaron Lovey, how you doing? Good, Aaron, nice to talk to you. Hey, thank you very much for, uh, for doing Founder Calls. Do you know what uh, you've gotten yourself into? I have some idea. Okay. This is, uh, this is um, I, I think we actually could do it slightly differently. Usually it's been uh, a little bit of a Charlie Rose um, kind of format, but I'm thinking this might be better to do more as an NPR format. Okay, you're Terry Gross. Um, I I think well, actually, that the way you speak, I think, is a little bit more uh, Terry Grossy. So I'm I'm gonna do um, I'm gonna do uh, one of the lesser known uh, uh, folks that uh, that are on the show. Um, so if you can just make sure to uh, you know do a very soft and soothing uh, voice um, and uh, and do as much uh, coffee drinking as you can, that'd be perfect. Oh right, uh, one second. <sighs> So I'm going to ask you a series of questions, but uh, ideally we can kind of take it any direction you want. Um, the the majority of, of people listening are going to be founders and and uh, CEOs and developers that are building for the enterprise. So um, as you can know, it's a as you know it's a somewhat of a, a lonely world out there building for enterprise software. So that's um, and that's hopefully what we we can all collectively go change. So just to get started, I guess why are you doing enterprise software? Well, because uh, you're supposed to be like the, some, like the cool photo sharing guy who builds game platforms. What, how'd you get into enterprise? There was a little bit of curiosity that I developed when I first got to Yahoo, and I had never worked at a big company before. And this was uh, so Yahoo acquired Flickr in 2005, and I was just fucking blown away by how terrible all the software was. I mean, every the internal intranet, the thing that did benefits, the payroll system, um, the expense tracking, and like every bit of enterprise software that they purchased was just so thoughtless and brutal. You know, kind of that old software development model, right. which occasionally had good results, but but didn't usually. Where there was a business analyst who you know like just wrote out all the use cases, and then an engineer who implemented all of the use cases without any thought for how it would feel to use or anything like that. So I was, it was kind of an eye-opener for me because I had never I've done consulting work for big companies at that time, but never actually been inside and seen what it was like. So that stuck with me for sure. And after leaving Yahoo in, um, in 2008, uh, I got back together with three of the original Flickr team, and we started a new company to build a web-based massive multiplayer game. So we can get into that in the founder journey part if you'd like, but didn't work. We spent three and a half years, um, about 12 million bucks developing this game. We had 45 people working on it. And despite the fact that the game didn't work, we kind of failed there in a spectacularly efficient fashion because <laughs> we started using we started using IRC. When we started the company, there was four co-founders, one in New York City, one in San Francisco, and two in Vancouver, BC. And no one was going to move. And so the natural thing for us to do was to spin up an IRC server. And if there's listeners who don't know what IRC is, it stands for Internet Relay Chat. It's a protocol for group communication that predates the web actually by a couple of years, I think originally from 88 or 89. Um, and it's, 
it's been around at the peak of popularity was probably in the late 90s, but it's been around for decades and still popular among some engineers and especially in the open source community. But IRC by itself is very, very limited. So, for example, if Aaron and I were on the same IRC server um, and Aaron didn't happen to be connected at the moment I wanted to send him a message, I just couldn't send him a message. There's no stored or forwarding of messages or anything like that. So, as we started using IRC, we started filling out some of the, the big gaps in functionality in the context of our usage. So the first thing we did was build a way to archive messages so you could catch up when you came back online. And once you had archives, you wanted to be able to search them, so we built a search tool. Um, there were no good iPhone clients at the time, so we built an HTML5 front end to browse the archives, but once you had that, of course you wanted to be able to respond, so you were able to send stuff from your phone, and on and on and on. So as the team grew, there's this interesting positive feedback loop or um, virtuous circle where the more people paid attention to IRC, the more information we routed into it. So things like the daily stats run or database alerts or um, notifications when someone uploaded a new file to the file server, um, new pages on the wiki, all that kind of stuff. So the more information we routed into it, of course, the more attention people paid to it. And... Uh, I can keep going on this for a little while, but the bottom line is when we decided to shut down the game, this is the end of 2012, we had been working on it for three and a half years. There was 45 people at the company. We had a company-wide email list that had 50 five-zero messages on it, so like under yeah. one every three weeks. We effectively didn't use email at all. And it wasn't an ideological decision. It wasn't even a conscious decision. Uh, it was just that because we had this IRC system, we didn't use it. One thing we definitely realized when we shut down the game um, was we were never going to work without a system like this again. Other people would probably find it useful. We should throw all the crappy, kludgy, hacky, jury-rigged stuff that we had built on top of IRC away and start from scratch with what a, a modern, contemporary system like this would look like. And that's what we did. So um, it, was not, it was a very indirect route to, to getting to enterprise software. Right, right. That's really interesting. Yeah, and also, um, I think after that, what we're going to do is rename this podcast series uh, to Founder Monologues. Um, so, um, <laughs> slight slight update to the branding. Um, but uh, at least we're giving you a, uh, uh, a chance to really let a lot of stuff off your chest. What, um, yes, thank uh, so, so this would make you the first enterprise software company to have pivoted from a massively multiplayer game, I think. Is, I, I, believe that is, um, I believe that is a record. I'm almost certain that's true. What? Um, so, just one uh, specifically on that one moment where you guys decided that, like, holy crap, we have this really interesting communication product, um, and even though you've been building something very different that entire time, what, what, what is that? What's going through your head to even have the have the opportunity to think about the thing that you've built as a potential product for the market? Like, where, like, are you, do you have a whiteboard session that says, okay, we have to pivot the company, what are all of our options? Like, what is the thing that allows that specific sort of idea to, to build enough steam internally that you can actually turn that, turn the entire company around that? Um, there wasn't any one critical moment. It was a long process of back and forth. And, you know, yeah. Ultimately, I wanted to work with this team again, and before we had even decided that we were going to do a game, we, we knew that we were going to work together. I actually, this is, it was late 2008 when we started talking about it, and early 2009 when we actually started the company. I wanted to make a bank, but I just couldn't convince anyone else that hmm. it would be fun to make a bank, because I'm the product person, and they're the engineers, and they're like, 
dude, making a bank will be super boring. All the code has to be <laughs> auditable. Like, it's just not going to be fun for us. But it would be super fun to make a game. So why don't we make a game instead? And so we had a similar conversation to that after. There's a bunch of ideas. And, I, you know, there's obviously a big, huge gap between massively multiplayer games on the one side and, and enterprise software on the other. But I just like to make software. And they just like to make software. We like to make software together. And to a certain extent, it doesn't really matter. Like, the the challenge and the process are very similar when you imagine the problem that you want to solve and the particular approach you're going to take and then you actually implement it and it works you get that same feeling of satisfaction no matter what the category is right right which is actually kind of quite similar to the yammer um uh, genesis out of uh, coming out of um uh the original uh family kind of tree sharing company so that's um, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. So, um, do, uh, okay. So, so you, you have Slack, it, it sort of, it, it sort of spins out, um, as its own product. Uh, you announce it, you, you launch it, obviously, um, starts building up kind of tremendous buzz very early on. Um, and what, what do you think captured people's imagination differently with Slack than, um, I mean, I mean, obviously not compared to IRC, but but against you know a backdrop of lots of different messaging communication services um, that were enterprise focused or or at least being used at the time. What why why did Slack sort of strike the 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 right kind of chord with everybody? Well, you know, a lot of these are again post facto rationalizations yeah. and not necessarily conscious decisions we made at the time, but um, part of that comes from. When today we ask our customers, what did you use before you use Slack? This is anecdotal, but 70 or 80% of them will say nothing. And we say, okay, well, of course you use something for internal communication. Let's say you had a change to benefits policy that needed to be announced to everyone at the company. What would you do? And they say, well, of course, we'd send an email out to the company-wide email list. But then at the other end of the spectrum, let's say you're going to be 10 minutes late for the meeting and you want to apologize and tell them to just get started without you. What would you do? And they would right. say, oh, well, we use Hangouts or SMS or Skype chat or whatever it is. Um, and what actually happened, there isn't one system for internal communication. There's usually like half a dozen or sometimes more that are used by different teams. So there, there might be some group in the company, usually in the technical operations team, that has an IRC server. And there might be some people using Yammer in the product marketing group. And there might be um, a HipChat instance. And there might be a lot of use of Skype chat. And sometimes there's whole companies that are based on massive Skype group chats, which is about the worst way I can imagine to communicate. But, yeah. <laughs> but people, you know, people have this need that they don't, that no one really thought about internal communication tools as a product category until very recently. Right. And so you know, no one looked for, a, you know, no, no one made a choice. And that's the interesting thing to me. Um, if you were to start a sales team today, the first thing you would do is choose a CRM. Like, you know, you're not going to hire, get to the point where you've hired eight salespeople and then decide, oh crap, we need a CRM. It's one of the first things you do. And if you're going to start a software engineering team, you're going to choose a system for source control. It's not like you would just get started and then three months in say, oh crap, we should have some source control system. You have to make that choice up front. But when you're starting a team in the generic sense, no one says, what are we going to use for internal communications? It just mm-hmm. is something that, that happens. So now we're starting to get to a place where people will think about that as a choice. And I don't even remember what the question was. Um, but the, fascinating answer. Yeah, no, great answer, um, <laughs> the, uh, regardless of the question, actually. So the, do you think you could, do you think now, do you think there's a framework in there where you could almost deterministically 
identify opportunities in, in enterprise software where just by looking at where is where are lots of people solving essentially the same problem with different solutions and then coming in with a, a new tool that kind of invents a category. Like if you had, let's say you hadn't sort of um, uh, somewhat uh, coincidentally ended up where, where you are, could you have actually done that in a more deterministic way? Yeah, um, I think you probably could have, but but in a kind of cheating sense where if enough <laughs> people are trying enough stuff, then eventually right. someone's going to hit on it. Which is true in a lot of cases, right? I mean, the, it's very, it makes you feel good to take credit for the things that were successful. But to a certain extent, any good opportunity is going to be discovered by someone. There's hundreds of thousands of people trying. Right. Um, and so just, you know, obviously survivorship bias gets into it. And um, be, I'm not sure. Be if, 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 it'd be better if you were more cocky about, uh, about how you guys discovered this. So, um. yeah, okay. Yeah, we, we, have a, we have a formula. I'm not ready to reveal that formula because I okay. feel like there's six or seven other opportunities you can discover using that same technique. And we'll, we'll, but, see, um, we'll see similar launches uh, over the next couple of years. You know, we went from Telegram to phone to email to maybe instant messaging, but maybe that's not, not enough of a, of a step function change to now this more real-time plus asynchronous plus um, kind of flattening um, of the of the communication space with with Slack, do you think that Slack needs to become more of a protocol than than just a, a client? Like, how do you think your role is then in in then enabling this next era of 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 communication? Well, when we talk about strategy internally, um, and when we talk about the future of the business, we the phrase that we use a lot is bottom layer of the business technology stack. So you know, I'm sure that you've noticed over the last like three years, um, you can go up much further than that, but like, this is one of those trends that seems to be accelerating. There's just more and more tools for everything. So the things I actually, on the, I was on the plane last night and I was sitting next to a guy who's a project manager for some Oracle certified Oracle solution implementer or whatever, you know, something like that. Um, and those things that used to be like SAP bespoke systems that took 18 months to develop and cost you 30 million bucks and stuff like that are often now you know, not, not as fully customized and not as fully featured, but like they're little startups um, with five people that provide some specific service, whether that's like internal project management tools or um, I was just looking at this company, BetterWorks, that does OKRs because we're thinking about using OKRs, um, or uh, employee engagement surveys, or on and on and on. But certainly for everything um, to do with developer tools, um, supply chain management, all kinds of stuff. And whereas a company, you know, ten years ago might have had one or two or three major vendors for their internal software needs. And, and yeah, I'm excluding like Windows and the Office Suite from that. But for, you know, for the higher level needs, now it's very typical that you'll have dozens. Uh, we, I, I, we counted ours a little while ago. We had over 30. So things like continuous, in, like I'm talking cloud-based services, so continuous integration testing tools, project management, bug, log analysis, CRM, uh, marketing analytics, BI, on and on and on. Um, and it's great. I, think, I feel like you and I have had this conversation before, but um, you know, if you go back to the 
the mid '90s or so, which is when I got my start making a living doing computer stuff. Microsoft just so completely dominated everything that um, you know they they ruled most product categories that they were in. And now, for every product category that Microsoft once dominated, uh, there's a dozen viable competitors, and there's often ones who are beating them in those categories. And also, the, you know, the, over the last twenty years, the category like there was such a thing as CRM twenty years ago, but it's radically different in a post Salesforce world. Um, so. People have a lot of these different tools. Communication is happening in a lot of them. So if you if you use Asada for project management, for example, I assign you a task, you put some notes on it, I comment on your notes, and then we have this whole conversation that's going on in Asana. And six months later, when I'm trying to figure out, you know, we're doing a postmortem on this project, or we're trying to figure out how we resolved this bug last time it um, it came up, or what the origins of this decision are, or even just mundane things like. I'm putting a deck together, and I remember this stat from this one article. I think it was in the New York Times. I don't know where, you know, did they email it to me? Did they send it in um, a Skype chat or a Hangout link or a Twitter DM or whatever? The extent to which you can pull all of that communication and all of that messaging and all those updates and all that data into one place and make it searchable uh, is, you know, it's a huge efficiency and is a huge um, advantage to companies to to be able to do that. So, I mean, Slack is at the very beginning of that, but it, we have about a million integrations set up by by customers that are pumping out millions of messages a day into Slack instances, and not every integration even is is a type that produces messages. So, we just um, just finish the box integration, for example. And that's not one that generates messages in the way that an integration with Twitter does, because you know the Twitter integration is all about when someone tweets at you, post the tweet into Slack. Whereas the box integration is about keeping the files in sync. Um, the future of that, I think, is uh, incredibly powerful and, and extremely valuable. Well, let's, let's talk about that for five seconds, and then I want to actually, um, I want to zoom in into one thing that you said, which is, which is sort of this idea that there's now software for, some, for almost every part of the business that is emerging, which I think is mm -hmm. going to fundamentally change both the opportunity for the software ecosystem, but also um, it will uh, equally change just how work is done. So with things like these integrations, and, um, and uh, when, we put this, uh, when we put this podcast live, uh, we'll have announced uh, the, the box integration. But um, this really is driving a new level of openness between systems in the enterprise and, um, and a much more heterogeneous approach to enterprise software. So, so the, it sounds like you want Slack to be the kind of, um, kind of foundational communication layer between these applications um, and, um, and then be able to uh, bring in information from different, lots of different kinds of systems. Uh, do you also want to push communication out to all those same systems as well or, or how do you see that? Yeah, that's the ideal. I mean, the, the two-way things. And it really depends on the nature of the thing that you're integrating with. Like, So with Twitter, obviously, you can post tweets in. You, there have been people who have created Twitter integrations from Slack so that you could tweet from Slack to Twitter. And mm -hmm. that's uh, maybe of like kind of medium value because there's, there's already good Twitter clients and that, you know, it's, it's more about collecting the information. Um, but a two-way integration between Box and Slack is, is much more valuable. But also one of the... Like, we almost feel like this is a part of Slack, but we forget that we didn't release it for anyone else because it's just our, our internal tool. We have a super, super simple bare-bones bug tracker. Mm. Um, and before Slack was even had its preview release, we did an integration internally that we could do a command slash bug and then 
at, and it would autocomplete from a list of usernames. And then you just type something out and you hit enter and it creates the bug and then echoes the URL back to you. So you can wow. click on the URL and, and there's the bug and you can type out a little bit more info. And it's so trivial. I mean, it's such an easy thing to do. It took 10 minutes. Um, but it's incredibly powerful because when you're having this conversation back and forth and you say, oh, okay, that is a bug, the alternative would be tab out of Slack, hit um, your browser, hit the new tab thing, start right. typing the URL of your bug tracker, wait for enough, you know, that you typed enough that it loads, you hit enter, wait for that page to load, hit the new bug button, wait for that page to load, and then start typing. And it's, it sounds stupid, but those, like, those seven tiny steps, which can be accomplished in seconds, right. add a lot of friction. Right. So. It's sort of like almost to some extent you guys have created a, a natural language processing UI for work. Yeah, that was you know one of the reasons that it's called Slack. There, it's kind of a little bit lost to history is because we thought that slash commands would be really important, and that mm. you know, one of the lessons to Twitter, although you know you can definitely debate this, is that a lot of normal people got the idea of like special character syntax that right. the at sign denotes a person and the hash mark is a hashtag and stuff like that. Um, and command line UIs are intimidating, even to me. Like I don't, I don't ever use the terminal on my right. lap, Apple laptop. Um, but obviously normal people, I mean, I did in the past, and ten, hundreds of millions of people, I don't even know how many people use DOS, but, but at least tens of millions and probably hundreds of millions. Tens of millions of just regular everyday people used WordPerfect and WordStar and other text-based word processing systems and like Lotus yeah. uh, 1, 2, 3 and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you have to get used to the software and it might require some training, but people spend hours a day in Slack. I mean, like, so in fact, yeah. in fact, almost yeah. the older the demographic, the more already uh, attuned they are for, uh, for the Slack uh, protocol. Yeah, but also if you do, you know, if you, if you are spending enough time, like if, it, if this was a consumer app and we we're hoping that people would use complex slash commands in the first 30 seconds, then yeah, that would yep. be kind of hopeless. But right. if it's something you use in the office every single day um, and you, you know, you're given enough time to develop some fluency with these things and it's just shortcuts or things that empower you, you will eventually pick them up. Like people, most Slack users eventually become expert Slack users. Right. So, okay, so if, so we, we have, uh, we, we use this term, the digital enterprise, uh, to kind of um, uh, it, it describe how, you know, if you look at a General Electric or you look at an Eli Lilly or a Gap or a Walmart, you know, these companies that have been around for, you know, decades and decades and, and, and in some cases hundreds of years or, 100, or over 100 years, um, they're going through a pretty radical change where not only is the inside uh, of how their organization operates changing pretty dramatically, but the way that they have to work with their customers and their clients and all of the external innovation, external facing innovation, uh, that's changing pretty dramatically. And, uh, and in the digital enterprise, you need uh, an all-new set of technologies, uh, essentially an all-new IT stack to be successful, to be able to be agile, move quickly, collaborate quickly. Um, and largely, these products are going to come from new startups and new vendors because, um, to your point, if you're Oracle or SAP, you've been, you, you're actually in the exact same category as, as your customers where you've been building up your software for the industrial world and then all of a sudden everything's going digital and things um, are going to be moving a lot more quickly and you need better software. So um, that, that sort of ties into the fact that 
uh, we probably won't have a sort of monolithic enterprise stack. It's going to be more instead, um, you know, uh, 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 loosely coupling uh, best of breed technologies uh, that that really kind of begin to transform how work is done. Do you have a sense of of let's say we have now this new modern enterprise that is running on Slack, running on next generation CRM tools, next generation um, uh, performance management systems, um, you know, being able to share their documents and content in new ways. What, what do you think changes about the work itself in these organizations? How will a company have to then adapt to this new way of working if you've been around for 50 or 100 years? What are the, what are the, the major shifts that are going to occur to those organizations? That's a fantastic question, and it's, it's a tough one. I guess I, I'm not sure if I have a great answer, but I'd say that it's it's parallel to a lot of the um, macroeconomic changes that have resulted from increased automation and increased computing power. So, first, computers were used for things like tabulating the census and um, replacing human beings, whose job title was computer, and then double entry <laughs> accounting. You know, like the kind of really basic arithmetic stuff that computers do incredibly well and, and much faster and more accurately than humans could ever do. Um, but it's been a, a little bit of a slog from, you know, like let's say the, the 70s where the productivity mm. gains you got from computerizing stuff were massive, like, you know, orders of magnitude, um, to through the 70s and 80s, things like the booking engine for the airlines, um, or like the early days of, uh, of ERP and kind of digital record keeping and, and things like that, the, I think the percentage increase in productivity probably got a lot smaller. And then yeah. there's all these arguments. I remember reading this book uh, by an economist slash human computer interaction expert. I'm trying to remember his name right now. Um, but the book was called The Problem with Computers. And it was published in like maybe 99 or 2000. And his argument was, you know, when we replaced humans doing double entry accounting with computers, that was massive. When we replaced secretarial pools staffed by people who are expert typers with the CEO having a word processor and like agonizing over the sentences and, and you know, editing becoming super cheap, so they would just edit and re-edit and re-edit the same sentence rather than just dictate once and have it typed up, that wasn't necessarily a productivity gain. You know, as the systems got more sophisticated and more prone to errors and required more training of um, a broader number of employees, things got more complicated. Now, I, so his, his argument was, and this, again, this was written in 99, that there haven't been significant productivity gains from the implementation of computing technology across all industries. Well, uh, I, think, I, I think it's Mark Andreessen that his view is, is that we're probably just measuring things like GDP incorrect, incorrectly at some point because... If you have these massive deflationary effects of of Moore's law and cloud computing, then then why do you need to measure GDP? Um, uh, like the GDP is not necessarily the best measurement of what are the actual productivity gains happening because of this new technology. And instead, we should probably look at you know what is um, you know what what are what you know obviously employment rates. Um, what is the value of 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 what you can get for for the dollar, um, you know, how can we drive down the cost of energy, um, of computing, of education, and those things wouldn't translate into higher GDP. It would just be better services for everybody. No, and then, and of course, like the classic complaint of uh, a big oil spill is a massive increase to GDP because there's all this right. activity that wouldn't have taken place. The remediation. So yeah, it's, it's probably not a good 
um, a good measure of the state of the economy or like our <laughs> like a good scorecard for how we're doing as human beings. Um, I think that's that's definitely true. And I think what, what's interesting. So we were in um, we were in D.C. Uh, uh, last week and or, or sorry two weeks ago and meeting with a bunch of CIOs of government agencies and trying to learn about kind of how they're working. And I think it's a it's sort of a perfect example of of organizations that are very much stuck in 80s and 90s technology, and you can just see how much it slows down everything within those organizations. And we cannot separate the technology that an organization runs on from the decisions that they make, the speed at which they move, the kind of um, the, the, the kind of quality of, of experiences in there uh, for, for employees. And so um, it's, it's almost then um, no wonder that, that our government moves so slowly if the underlying systems that they're on are so slow. And it, it just makes it so painful to be innovative and to move quickly and to collaborate. Uh, it's not that different than the the uh, uh, Japanese story uh, from Andy Grove, which is that if you if you build up your culture and your technology that is underlying that culture on on one vector, and then all of a sudden things change, you're going to you're just not going to be able to keep up. And so um, I think you know, hopefully, with with this new era of technology, we're just going to see technology not as the inhibitor to to sharing and communicating and to collaborating, but as a, but instead a, a real accelerant to it. And, um, and, and, and that means that hopefully all, all types of jobs and employees and teams can begin to, to do the work that actually is, is the really interesting work and the creative work um, as opposed to the, the stuff which is just always sort of working around the technology um, and, and not necessarily using technology as a way to, to, to move more quickly. Yeah, that's a, it's a super fascinating thing that you bring up there, especially when it comes to government because – so one of the one of the opportunities we think about is identity management because if you're a five person startup and the day you start you uh, get a Slack instance and you start building up from there your employee directory is the identical to your Slack user directory and that's also true by the way of Google Apps and and a, you know a bunch of other things um, and that's why you see so many young SaaS companies having uh, sign in with with Google Apps because it's just natural. So that becomes your SSO system, and that's kind of your replacement, uh, a, a very impoverished replacement, sure, but a replacement for um, directory services and LDAP and all that kind of stuff. So we think about that as an opportunity, and then we think like, God, you know, if you're a hundred thousand person company that's been around for decades, it's not just that you have. Uh, a big cash investment in all these legacy systems. It's that you have all these people that are trained. Like I think about even Yahoo, which is only you know twenty years old or whatever. When I the day I got there, I filled out a form that had my social security number on it, and somehow my badge worked to get into the building. And I was in the payroll system and the benefit system and the Microsoft domain controller, so my laptop could log in. And I had a VPN account, and a lot of those things will have been automated through hundreds of thousands of lines of IT people writing code to put these systems together. And a lot of it is just humans doing manual data entry, copying from one system to another. When you think about the number of people who are trained up on those systems, right. it's, it seems like it's almost impossible to change it. Like the expense at this point would be so great or the, the I don't know, organizational trauma would be so great that it's almost like companies that have these massive investments in legacy systems are going to get creamed by... Right. New companies that do the same thing, well, but that have all fresh software. Yeah. But you can't do well, that with the government. Like you can't just say like, 
well, we'll just let the IRS go to business and some other newer, cooler IRS will come up and replace them or like, or the Department of Energy or Transportation or, you know, any of those things. Right. It, it, it's, it's interesting. In the government side, it actually, there's no, there's no traditional form of incentive um, for, for any kind of change to take place in these agencies. So there's this huge dichotomy between uh, CIOs that, that literally just love innovation and technology and they want to move forward from the from the the agency leaders that that this is a this is a job to them and so because they're going to have that job with or without innovation and because there's no market pressure then there's not a whole lot of incentive to actually change and it's it's really mm-hmm. interesting because it's it's a it's sort of a one giant advertisement for capitalism um, because if you don't have any external pressure then there's no incentive for anybody in the organization because you're not measured by your productivity, your output, because you don't have to go, you know, acquire customers that have to like your experiences. And so that, that's just a, a whole problem with the government. But what's interesting is um, it's not going to be that dissimilar in the, in the, in the corporate world. It's just we're going to let the, the Darwinian forces will just play out a bit differently, which is um, if it, what we see a lot of times is you'll go into an industry like – uh, maybe financial services or healthcare, where there's such a massive existing investment in infrastructure and systems, and as these companies want to build new digital experiences that work with their clients because their client expectations are changing, they're first sort of looking at like what is their existing investment, what are their existing systems, and how can they build on top of those to solve these new digital experiences which is sort of the exact opposite of what a startup will do, which they'll say, what is the what is the digital experience I'm trying to create? And then what are the best tools that are going to enable that? And um, and depending on how you, how you frame the problem or how you go attack the problem, you're going to end up with a completely different um, set of technologies that are going to power your experience. And, and largely, I think you and I would agree that, that, that there's a right version and a wrong version. There's not like, it's not like two different ways to do it. It's actually like, like if you tried to build Uber on an Oracle database and, um, and you, know, uh, you know, on-premises infrastructure that can't scale up and... Um, and on a technology stack that, that has been baked for a couple decades, there's just no chance you're going to compete with, with a new transportation company. And the same is going to be true in a life sciences business, in a healthcare company, in, a, in, a, in an online bank. And so, you know, watching how this plays out with even just, you know, traditional industries um, is, is, is going to be very interesting because if you can start from scratch, both in how you work internally, but how you build your own technology on the outside, that seems like that's going to be, um, that, that will be the sort of major Darwinian force, it seems, over the next couple of decades. Um, so last, last question. Um, uh, so um, you guys have raised a couple million dollars um, uh, here and there and, uh, and, and have been incredibly successful on the fundraising side. What is the, uh, what, what is the kind of, what, what, you have, you have, I think a couple of, of philosophies around this or at least one or, 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 uh, or something that, that maybe you could share with other entrepreneurs. Like why have you guys raised at the scale that you've raised? What is the, what is the kind of core thesis there? Well, the, a recap for, because um, not everyone will know the history, we this company is actually six years old, and we did a seed and an A and a B round back in 2009, 2010, 2011 when we were working on the game. Um, started working, or shut down the game in 2012. Started working on Slack in 2013. Launched in 2014, and at, by the time we actually officially launched it, it was pretty clear that this was going to be 
a success in some sense. It was growing very quickly, and people actually you know, paid money for it, and conversion was good. So we raised around in April of last year, so just almost exactly a year ago, um, 42 million bucks and a 250 million post. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about six months later, raised another 120 million at a 1.1 billion post. And then just last month, or a couple of weeks ago, closed another round. So this is, again, you know, six months later, uh, another 160 million at a 2.8 post. So it's a lot of money, and it's, it's nerve-wracking in one sense. But I guess the, the philosophy has been it's partly dollar cost averaging on the, the amount of dilution we have to take. But this most recent round, you know, the, the choice was as the person responsible ultimately for the, you know, the return that our investors get, the well-being of our employees, the kind of service that we provide to our customers, are we better off having 100% of what we have today or 94.3% or whatever it was of what we yeah. have today plus yeah. another 160 million bucks in the bank? The latter was was true for us. So there's a danger there. You know, there's there's no business transaction that doesn't have some risk. Otherwise, like if there was zero risk, of course you would do it all the time, and you don't have to think about anything. Um, and the risks are are well known um, to the extent that the valuation is lower at some point, and, and there's a fortune function, people have to exit, and people lose money, and that's un, you know it's demoralizing, um, it's bad for employees, and it can be damaging to the business and stuff like that. But the rate at which we're growing, uh, you know, you know, I should say as well, two point eight billion is an insane valuation for our current revenue. Like, there's no justification um, unless you believe that the rate of growth can continue. Like, our last double in revenue was ninety six days, and the one before that <laughs> was a hundred days. Um, and we, you know, we we are staying, and it's astonishing to me that this. Keep happening, but we're staying at around that same rate of growth. Look, it's been five and a half percent compound weekly growth for the last seventy straight weeks. And so, so there's evidence. Was, there's evidence yeah, that this might continue. <laughs> yeah, and we're not burning a lot of money. So, just having that money in the bank preserves a right. lot of option value for the future. Whether that's you know uh, spending to ahead of revenue in terms of growth on the marketing side, whether that's acquisitions, whether that's international expansion. Um, I, I got some praise and some criticism in the press around this financing for saying that we don't have a use for the money right now because we don't. Like, except unless you think that preserving option value is a use for money, and right. I do think that you know, we don't have plans to spend it right away. But it is useful to have 160 million real U.S. dollars that are you know fungible and can be exchanged for anything you want in the bank just in case you need it. Right. Are you? Uh, do you have like a really good treasure that's doing like foreign exchange like currency bets right now or anything? We haven't done much because we don't. I mean, <laughs> right now, we're charging all in U.S. dollars, which is crazy. Yeah. So we have people, yeah. we have people in Japan paying us with credit cards in U.S. dollars, which is not the level of service we would like to provide to our Japanese customers. But um, but that is definitely something we look at because we have a fairly significant office in Canada. Um, that exchange rate definitely makes a difference and we should be hedging. But there's no, I mean, the, the, the whole reason we're able to raise this amount of money right now is there's no return in holding money in the bank. Like, I, you know, we get 20, maybe 30 basis points or something like that for our best stuff. Um, so there's no, there's no good, there are hedges you can do, but there's really no good use for capital that's sitting around, which is the reason that venture capital funds are getting 
raising bigger funds and the dynamics of VC don't change and therefore the only place, you know, the only output variable left is valuations of these companies. So valuations right. are getting driven up right. by the fact that VC funds are, are bigger and there's the same number of partners and they're going to do the same number of deals. And there's, there's still a scarcity of really great companies to, to be able to put money into. Yeah. So. Um, okay. Well, it sounds like a very pragmatic view, and uh, and and certainly just making sure that you guys have the the best balance sheet possible for for growing, um, you know, for well into the future. So, um, I think that's a uh, that's a that's a really kind of solid point of view. Um, yeah, great. Yeah, <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 I approve. I approve of your answer. Um, so uh, cool. Well, um, I think we're, uh, we're we're certainly nearing the longest call that we've had. Um, so I think we, we can let you enjoy the sun today. Any other final thoughts for any entrepreneur that is um, either starting a software company or uh, looking to uh, l- looking to raise four hundred million dollars? Any any other final kind of quick ideas? Uh, <laughs> Be the leader in your in a new nascent category that people think okay. is going to be very successful. No, but I, I think it's a <laughs> it's a great time, and it's relative. I mean, it totally depends on your personal inclination, your appetite for risk, um, you know, and and how you're going to feel about yourself if you screw it up. But it's a great time to start a company. Um, the The market for raising capital is. I, honestly, I mean, it's not necessarily distributed evenly at all stages of a company's development, but it is roughly the best time ever. Um, like we talked about throughout this whole thing, the, the tech changes are fantastic. Like the cost of production is super, super low. So there's a lot of new opportunities. And there's going to be so many more things over the next 20 years that when we look back 20 years from now are going to be like, oh, no shit, that someone did that. I mean, that was an obvious <laughs> idea that, that, that we haven't thought of yet. You know, like that no, no one's even going to think about for five years, and then suddenly it's going to be genius. Um, awesome. Well, uh, Stuart, thanks a lot for, uh, for doing the call. Uh, we will all uh, continue to, to watch and, and see what, uh, what happens, and, um, and hopefully everyone will use the Box and Slack integration, so uh, that, will, that will be helpful for, uh, for everybody. That is my hope as well. And it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Aaron. Cool. Thanks, man. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.